You're listening to the Chris Voss Show podcast. We interview the smartest people in the room, the CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators to fill up your brain and make you better looking. Here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, we've got some great guests that are coming up on the show. We always have the best guests every time, though. Uh, we have Eddie Glaude Jr. is going to be on to talk about his book about James Baldwin. Uh, I've been reading and studying and watching a lot of stuff on James Baldwin since coming across him from a prior author, uh, Where the Fire... I forget the name of the book, but you probably heard it. So anyway, watch for him to be on the show this next week and a lot more exciting guests, book authors, et cetera, et cetera. Today, we also have a most exciting guest, Devin Thorpe. He's a book author of multiple books. He's a speaker. He's been on the show before. He's also running for candidate for Utah's third district uh, for the congressional. Uh, he calls himself a champion of social good. He's a Forbes contributor who wrote about erratic eradicating poverty, improving global health, and reversing climate change. He's produced 1,200 episodes of his Your Mark on the World show, featuring change agents, including Bill Gates. His books help use uh, people use money for good, and he's helped nonprofits raise millions via crowdfunding. Previously, he had a 25-year finance career and was a U.S. Center staffer. Uh, he earned an MBA at Cornell after graduating from the U. You might be too smart to be on the show. Look at this resume. <laughs> what am I doing with you? No risk that. Um, he frequently finds himself on airplanes, probably not so much anymore. This might be an old bio. That's, that's um, right. And uh, he's usually grateful to be in the middle seat. I think that's probably changed. Meaning up that, that, that bio. Welcome to the show. That's Devin. right. <laughs> hey, thank you for having me, Chris. Next, it's fun next to be time back. Have, You're very generous. Thank you. Next time we have you on, we'll have to we'll have to eradicate those last that last sentence. <laughs> yeah. Of course, hopefully the next time. Well, we want to have you on sooner than that. I don't think we're gonna have a uh, thing before we get you on again. But it's wonderful yeah. to have you on. Thank you very much, sir, for being. Thank with you. Us. Thank you. And uh, so you're running for office. How's the running for office thing going? If we can get that in. Well, you know, it's it's uh, an incredible experience. Uh, you know, I I had a sense of how difficult and challenging it would be, how much work would be involved, and uh, but boy, I tell you, I, I could only see ten percent of it. Really, uh, it, it has been. I think it isn't crazy to say it's been two, three, four, I don't know, 10 times more difficult than I thought it would be. Um, but I get up every morning and I remind myself why I'm doing this. This isn't about me. This is about uh, people, people who are uh, experiencing job loss because of COVID. It's about people who are uh, experiencing uh, illness because of the pandemic or any other kind of illness. It's about people who are uh, suffering because of uh, the actions of our uh, current administration. It's about people who are worried about our planet and who are suffering as a result of the of climate change. Um, you know, there are a lot of reasons to get up in the morning and get to work on this, and uh, those reasons fire me up. So I, it's hard, but I'm doing it. Look at your we website. Intend to win. Yeah, definitely. Utah's going blue, baby. This is happening. All the red states are flipping this time. Hey, give us your uh, .com and uh, plug some of your books, if you will, real quick. Well, thank you. Uh, so the website is devinthorpe.com, D-E-V-I-N-T-H-O-R-P-E.com. And uh, yeah, I've written uh, you know a bunch of books, uh, including Your Mark on the World, uh, which was a, a brand I've used a lot over the last decade. But that was a book I wrote about using your money for good. And uh, I wrote a sequel called 925 Ideas to Help You uh, Save Money, Get Out of Debt, and Retire a Millionaire. And that book has been downloaded downloaded over a million times. It's been a very, very popular book. Uh, I, I'm honored uh, to see that. Oh my gosh. It's been so satisfying to see people read that and, and to hear from people to, you know, to change their lives and golly, saved the marriage. And wow. Um, so I'm, wow. I'm grateful that that's worked out. I also wrote a book about crowdfunding for social good. 
mm-hmm. and a book on corporate social responsibility called uh, Adding Profit by Adding Purpose. So uh, kind of uh, covered the waterfront of money for good subjects. Awesome sauce. Uh, if if I'm buying a lot of pizzas, is that money being used for good? <laughs> you know, uh, more than you think. More, more than, than you think. think. <laughs> Note to self, Devin Thorpe says, pizza's good, not pizza bad. Um, right. <laughs> uh, so, Devin, uh, you know, just curious off the top, before we get into topics, how, what was it like to interview Bill Gates? I think I saw that episode. Yeah, it, it was, uh, it was, of course, a special experience. And although I usually did uh, my interviews in this format, just like you, Chris, same identical format. For that one, I, I went to meet Bill in Spokane, Washington at a Rotary conference. Mm-hmm. And we sat down uh, with the, in addition to Bill, there was the president of Rotary International uh, at the time. And we just had a great uh, three-way conversation, uh, and it, it's phenomenal. You know, one of the one of the favorite moments for me was I asked Bill Gates, you know, what are your superpowers? And I said, what is your superpower? And he really named three. Blue screen? Um, no, he, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he, he claims, you know, he brands himself as an impatient optimist, but it was mm-hmm. interesting that he called out patience as one of his superpowers. He said, you know, it takes time to do this stuff. He said, you know, we started working on a a new vaccine for polio eight years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's going to take a long time to get it in the field. Uh, He pointed out that uh, uh, at the time we talked, uh, he was anticipating a new vaccine or the first vaccine for HIV to be approved in the months following our interview. And he said it will have been 25 years. Well, the remarkable thing about that was it wasn't approved. And as if, you know, a few months later, to punctuate the point he was making is that um, dealing with these, the world's biggest challenges like climate change, poverty, and and global health issues requires some patience. I would also, uh, you know, I appreciate his his branding. He calls himself an impatient optimist. And I think it also requires a little bit of impatience as well. So anyway, it was fun to talk about that. And then he he talked a little bit about his ability to organize people. And and then he acknowledged that having a lot of money was kind of a superpower. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Which I thought was honest. That seems to probably make a difference, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it probably does make a difference. Give you an edge. Give you an edge there. yeah, I was going to say Windows 10 blue screen was a superpower. That's the screen of death. But <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I would I would probably categorize myself as an impatient pessimist. <laughs> yeah. Not only am I pissed off that the world's going to shit, but I'm really fucking angry about it. No, I just. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I hear you, Chris. Uh, you know, uh, you and I were talking just before. In fact, we started talking yesterday, really, uh, mm-hmm. about this Roger Stone. Uh, commutation of his sentence uh, by President Trump. Uh, you know, yeah. your reaction to this is really healthy. It's, re- you know, this is a really big deal. Yeah, I was depressed yesterday, Friday, and depressed. I mostly gamed. Yeah, it's. I, it's, yeah, I just I mean, go ahead. You know, I. You're right to react that way because it is so scary. You know, it, in a way, I think Americans will accept this as just one more Trumpism. But what it reflects is an absolute fundamental disrespect for the rule of law. It reflects a, a deep and abiding disrespect for uh, our criminal justice system. It suggests that there are two separate justice systems in our country, one for friends of Donald Trump and one for everyone else. And that is scary stuff, because what if you're not a friend of Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure friend is a, is the correct word. I think the, the word is uh, the word is uh, La Cosa Nostra or fucking uh, criminal uh, uh, accessory. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, somebody on Twitter today they said they said uh, would would the how, 
would the U.S. government be better off if the mob ran it? And I'm like, well, I used to live in Vegas. You saw the way mob ran Vegas. Cheap food, great entertainment, work for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, as soon as the corporations it, moved in, they ruined Vegas. So, fuck how yeah, It is scary. And, and, and there is evidence. There is evidence that, uh, you know, we, we have seen it in so many different ways. That there's evidence that the president has a disregard for the fundamentals of the constitution. Yeah. Uh, I don't even think he's ever, I would bet you a million dollars. He's never read it. Um, yeah. I'm not sure he knows how to read. Well, he, clearly he knows how to read a teleprompter. I just yeah. don't know how they put it in the big black letters. So um, there's been a lot of interesting things. We want to talk about social justice and black lives matter today. And some of the things that are going on. In fact, I'm just reading here. I believe this is off of, um, I've got too many screens open, evidently, uh, or too many computers going. Uh, this is off the Washington Post feed. Uh, Trump confident Roger Stone left over thousands of inmates seeking clemency. Um, and just the fact that he, like I say, I, I the 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 consensus has been that if Roger Stone spends a day in jail, he's going to start squealing and probably start flipping states' evidence. Um, so they had to do this. I just didn't expect him to do it until the end of the thing. But what's most depressing right now is it, he, he seems to know he's going to lose the election. There's different election polls that have him oh, at a 1% chance of winning. All the states that are red, except for Utah, are starting to really turn blue, and I'm hoping they'll elect you um, so we can get that bluer. Um, but I think but, even Utah is going to flip. Uh, you think so? You know, Utah has, is a deep red state. It is deeply conservative, but Utahns have never been as enamored with President Trump as other red states have been. And uh, so it's easier for Utah to flip blue this time than for other red states. And I expect, uh, I fully expect that uh, Joe Biden will win Utah and take that little bundle of uh, Utah Electoral College votes. And uh, I'm excited about that. And I'm excited about yeah. what that means for, uh, you know, Chris Peterson and the other Democrats running in Utah this year. I think Chris Peterson has a good chance of beating Cox. I mean, Cox just seems like a kind of a nerdy little guy to me. Um, and he had a lot of, I mean, he's basically Herbert's right-hand man who was a Trumper. Um, I, it's just insane to me that any state can look at a leadership in a state and go, well, we're in a pandemic and our attorney general has us, uh, uh, our attorney general has us uh, uh, trying to overturn uh, Obamacare. Yeah, sure, that sounds fine. <laughs> just the ludicrousness nature of that whole thing yeah, yeah. is just insanity. Yeah, so, it is. It is nuts that our, our attorney general, uh, Sean Reyes is suing the federal government to end uh, Obamacare uh, at the same time, the citizens of Utah decided to vote to expand Medicaid under uh, the provisions of Obamacare. Uh, and overwhelmingly, Americans and Utahns agree that they want to keep the protection uh, around uh, pre-existing conditions that the Affordable Care Act provides. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, the law is actually very popular, even in Utah. And so for the attorney general to sue uh, against the will of the people, the federal government, in, uh, is just a, a waste of money and an affront to Utah voters. And here's the thing. The people no one's even really talking about or thinking about what's going to happen if they overturn Obamacare and all these people get thrown off their insurance or don't have insurance because they're broke. They can't pay their co-pays. They can't pay their um, their Cobras because we're going to have layoffs going through this thing. Um, when they try and get insurance again, these evil insurance companies are going to call COVID-19 a pre-existing condition because there's damage that COVID-19 does to people. Even as many people, and not all people, but many people, uh, there's some people that have what they call a glass lung situation where their yeah. lungs are damaged and they may not notice as much when they're young, but when they get to your and my age, you know, that's when you kind of start feeling your lungs and going, wow, you know, I mean, I have certain body parts, kidneys and livers that saw a little too much vodka over the years and they're not <laughs> real happy with me these days. And, yeah. you know, I have to keep placating them to be like, I, 
uh, I won't drink anymore. Just please stick with me. Okay. I just, uh, let's see if we can work this out. Please baby, baby, stay with me. Um, and so I think a lot of people are going to have those lungs. And so insurance companies are going to go, Oh yeah. Oh, you got COVID. That's a pre-existing condition, baby. And they either won't cover you or they'll, uh, they're going to hit you for more. And, People just people just aren't even thinking about where we're going to be in a year from now or two years from now. That's why I'm encouraging people to vote for people like you and people that uh, <clears throat> are responsibly lead us through what is going to be a financial crisis. I mean, within a month, already in Vegas, there are people that I know that are sleeping in cars because they did everything right. They had a job. They weren't bums or anything. I'm not knocking bums, but I'm just saying this is their story. And they did everything right. They got laid off. They applied for their unemployment. They worked for years. Unemployment was so backed up and so behind because the states couldn't handle the massive of applications and stuff. And then, you know, all the stupid paperwork they have to go through. Uh, normally, they at least make you wait. I think it's like at least eight weeks. And you're like, who can most people, Americans can't live without eight weeks for money. And, um, and the, still the checks didn't come. So there are people that have lost their homes already or been kicked out already. And then evictions are going to start more. Uh, they're already starting now, and they're going to start more, I think, as as uh, most states, uh, the blocking of, of evictions and stuff. And it's going to be brutal, man. It's going to be worse than 2008. It's going to be really freaking brutal. And I don't see anything going on. I, I think the thing that frustrates me about Donald Trump, excuse me, is the criminality of it all, just the, just the sheer lawlessness of it. Um, and uh, <laughs> maybe we would be better off with, uh, with the mob. Um, you know, at, at least the mob only killed each other, the, the people that were in the yeah. mob. So, like, I don't know, they just whack other people in government and leave the rest of us alone. You know, the mob didn't usually go after normal people. Yeah. Uh, well, it is scary to think about our our federal government being run by someone who has no regard for the law, thinks he yeah. operates above it or beyond it or outside of its reach. And so far, the federal government has failed mm-hmm. uh, to prove him wrong. Yeah. Uh, he's gotten away with almost everything that he's tried to do that's illegal. Uh, and, and that is scary. That is scary. You know, I, I've been on an interesting journey recently, um, and uh, let me see if I can pull some of this up. Um, I had, I, I like Eddie Glaude Jr. I mentioned he's going to be on the show soon, but he had done a um, book uh, on uh, James Baldwin. I never heard of James Baldwin before. I'm, I, you know, I skipped college, and I mean, look at me. Seriously, do I look like I'm brilliant? <laughs> um, so uh, I'd seen his book, and you know, I'd seen him promoting on Morning Joe, which he normally is on. And I thought, well, that's a weird-looking fellow, that Mr. Baldwin dude. And I thought, well, you know, I'll find out what more about the book is when it comes out. Eddie's a brilliant thinker. Um, and uh, and just the serendipity of the moment, you know, what's going on with Black Lives Matter. And uh, we were, you know, we work with a lot of uh, book publishers. We just picked up O'Reilly. They send other book authors to us. Uh, we have a huge slate of people coming. Uh, and uh, they sent us their catalog, and I pick like 20 books out. One of the books was called The Fire Upon Us, and it's a story about uh, James Baldwin and William F. Buckley doing their big uh, debate in 1965. And to do my research for the show, <clears throat> I didn't have a copy of the book yet. I took and uh, watched the video of it, which thankfully you can get all this stuff on video. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I was just blown away. In fact, I was so enthralled and started watching more James Baldwin uh, videos. I I almost I showed up late for the show. <laughs> I've been late, and uh, and so we had a great discussion with Nicholas uh, Bocola. Uh, so if you haven't got a chance, check out the Fires Upon Us. It's a pretty amazing book. And then uh, I got into Eddie's book um, and uh, about James Baldwin, and it's called Begin Again, something about James Baldwin. Um, and I started reading more about the experience of James Baldwin, African-Americans, especially back then. And actually, African-Americans, what's going on, a lot of it is a, is a you know, we're, we're still having the same sort of problems today. And people don't understand what being discouraged, what being held down, what being, what seeing how the rule of law only applies to some people applies to other people. Uh, a lot of African-American people grow that, up that way because they know um, we had another author on, 
who's African-American before uh, Nicholas. And he talked about how when I grew up as a kid and discovered that I was black, most people do around five or 10, I think Jim Baldwin said, um, he said, you know, I, I, uh, I found that one out of three uh, black people will end up in jail. And I had three brothers or two brothers and myself. He said, so literally as a child, I had to look around and go, which one of us? Can you imagine having to think and grow up with that statistic and that sort of thinking in your head? And I'll, I'll go on just a little bit here. Uh, so I, you know, I wrote one of my best friends who's a, a brilliant attorney in uh, SoCal. And I, and I forward him something about how, you know, this is really breaking the rule of law. And he's like, yeah, no, the laws, law system in this country is the greatest thing ever. And I said to him, I said, you don't understand. I go, when people see the breaking of the rule of law, they do one of two things. They get discouraged and they sometimes flip and just go, you know what? Fuck it. If everyone's going to be a criminal, if the president can be a criminal, I'm going to go be a criminal too. Why do I even care? Uh, I've actually had friends that have done that. They've gone from being Democrats to Trumpers because they just got tired of not making all the money and they're just like, screw it. I'm going to do it. I actually have a video of one of them making that announcement on Periscope. Um, I, I saw the Trumpers, of course, including young people who are very impressed by Donald Trump. And they're like, hey, yeah, let's go rip everybody off and make all sorts of money and screw everybody. And this is the way we're going to be like Donald Trump when we grow up. Young people. Um, and I got to tell you, Two times, the first time it happened somewhere early in his thing, some criminal stuff he did, and then this time, it made my brain sit down and go, why the hell do I care anymore? Why the hell do I care about being moral? Why the hell do I care about being ethical? Why do I care about doing the right thing? Because this guy's the president of the world and just screws everybody, doesn't pay anybody, does criminal stuff. Why, why do I? Why, why should I stop scaring? I know how to be an, uh, an ugly, evil businessman just like him. Why, why do I care? And, of course, naturally, you have to come back to yourself and go, okay, well, calm down, Mr. Uh, Mr. Dude there, and let's uh, remember who we are and, you know, and, and being good to other people and, you know, do unto others what you want to do. And mm-hmm. let's remember there's some principles here that you live by. Um, but – what, what a lot of people don't realize is the damage that does to the psyche on all of those fronts. Oh, yeah. It, it is really scary. Uh, and, you know, you, you talk about James Baldwin, and, and, and that relates so directly to this. Uh, ever since uh, President Trump all but admitted to being a racist by talking about good people on both sides after yeah. the Charlotte uh, uh, experience when we literally had uh, avowed racists on one side mm-hmm. and people who were opposing racists on the other side. And he's talking about good people on both sides. Um, we've kind of known his true colors mm-hmm. and uh, we've seen that in recent weeks, right, with the uh, peaceful protests on Lafayette Park. And one of there's there's a little nuance about this story that doesn't get told. Only people who've worked and lived in Washington appreciate this. But there are peaceful protesters in Lafayette Park every single day. There there are no days without protests in Lafayette Park because. People have been going there every day, as far as I know, and sometimes it's small, right? Sometimes it's just one clown in a, you know, with a big sign, you know, railing on the president for this or that. But usually there are at least three or four of those clowns, and sometimes they have little groups. And so, I mean, it varies by day what's there, but there are peaceful protests in Lafayette Park every single day. So for him to act like today we need to bring out the military and use tear gas and all the rest to clear out the the park uh, is incredibly inappropriate. Uh, And just, you know, it's a story for middle America to scare people that, you know, Antifa is coming. And he said that, right? And people believe it. Uh, I have visited rural towns in Utah that are worried about Antifa coming to their town and making medlam, bedlam, uh, and it's just, it's nuts. And it has 
a fundamental racist tinge to it that we have to call out. Um, and so I think you've, you've led us to a very important topic. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, the failure of the rule of law. And, you know, the things I, I've seen in, uh, in, in, the, in both these books uh, from Nicholas Bacola and Eddie Glaude Jr., uh, the thing I've seen in a lot of the videos and stuff, I haven't gotten in the writings, but I, I do a lot of work, and what I'll do is I'll play the YouTube videos behind me, and I, I really fall in love with James Baldwin's work, and not only his work, but his delivery. He has an intelligent and mm-hmm. emotional delivery that, that appeals to me. I'm, I'm, <clears throat> one of the people that I really like is Christopher Hitchens, or like when he was alive, God rest his soul, and I used to just listen Sometimes I just play in the background, just listening to him debate stuff because he was just so intellectually brilliant. Um, and I'm like, I want to be him when I grow up, but I, I'm running out of time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, one of the things that James talks about is is what we're experiencing right now with Black Lives Matter. It's this. It, nothing has really changed much in 55 years of uh, the since the civil rights experience and what we're seeing now in Black Lives Matter. I mean, I did have a really great day for two days when I saw Black Lives Matter painted in front of the Trump Tower. That was, that's one of my highlights this year, which is pretty bad because, I don't know, man, I, you'd think they're, I, think I, I don't know, giving me birth to a child or something. I don't know. I, <laughs> that's my highlight, but I'll take it because good yeah. for – Good for uh, fucking everybody. Uh, it was even more beautiful to see the five members of the uh, so-called, uh, uh, what was that thing that he was trying to get them in prison, even after they'd been proved that they weren't uh, the, the five members of the oh yeah. uh, Central yeah. Park Five, it, I think it was called. Um, know, it's, that's one of the things that most influenced my life that Donald Trump has done was the uh, – outrage he helped to foment against these innocent black kids Mm -hmm. in uh, New York City uh, after he accused them of wilding and uh, raping this woman uh, in Central Park. And, uh, you know, these five kids uh, maintained their innocence and have been proven since to be innocent, but they all spent a decade in prison and in no small part because of the anger that Trump fomented in uh, 1990 around this uh, rape that was, perf- you know, committed by someone else. Yep. Not and it was beautiful that they were, they, I think they were with Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, but they were there painting the painting the black lives matter or were they there yeah they were there i did i saw the picture and i was like this is awesome and then i saw another picture bill de blasio's in the middle and he's flanked by i guess the five kids or that they're grown people now um but uh flanked by them and they were putting you know the first rollers down but the thing that james baldwin talks about is how discouraging it is to grow up in uh racist america racial america and have um, and and to very early on come to grips with, you know, you, you grow up as a child and you think what you were like as a child. You know, the world is an oyster; it's an adventure. It's you have all these weird fantasies because you know. I mean, when we were kids, I think at five, we tried to dig to China. We just thought mm-hmm. that was somehow possible. We actually did. You dig the pit and <laughs> yeah. like get like I don't know about yeah. five feet down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then we realized how much work that was, and we're like, we're, it was like a project that we had going for years. We're like, we're going to eventually get to China. It's just uh, maybe another hour of digging or something. But, yeah, but we, <laughs> we really had that fantasy going. Um, but but then at a certain age, you realize and it triggers it. Um, uh, I remember. Anyway, you 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 grow up, and I remember one of one of my first early uh, pictures of. Martin Luther King was him with his young son and he's standing next to a cross that was put into his front lawn and burned, uh, you know, by the KKK back in those days. Uh, and I, I, I remember just staring at the picture and I've, I've spent a lot of time looking at it over the years and just wondering what a father has to do to explain to their child as to why daddy's lawn has a burning cross on it. I can't imagine what that's like. I can't imagine the discussions I'd have to have with my children. Um, and so, you know, moving forward to where we're talking about social um, justice here and social, um, social things that are going on. Uh, I hope black lives matter is going to continue. And I, I hope all those people register to vote that are out pro- protesting. 
Um, but it seeing the monuments come down, studying as to why it's important these monuments come down. Uh, there's streets that need to be renamed, schools that re- renamed. One of the discussions I'm going to have when Eddie, Eddie uh, God Jr. is on is uh, different things that we need to change to really come out of this because it's more than just tearing down um, these monuments. There's a lot of stuff that has to be done. Oh, yeah. You know, what I think about this issue, and there are lots of aspects to it, but two of the aspects are... Uh, uh, implicit bias that we all have and need to sort of wrestle with personally. And then there are uh, institutional elements of racism. And uh, I, I want to use a couple of examples. Will you allow me to share a couple of allegories? Mm-hmm. So on implicit bias, I have, uh, my, my wife and I go to get fast food way too often. And when we go to get it sounds like food, an implicit bias to me, buddy. <laughs> yeah, right there. But when we do, it's my job to go get the sodas. And for a long time, we always got the same size soda. And I had a because we don't get the same soda. I would get hers and put it in the right my right hand, and I would put mine in my left hand because hers is more important, and the important things go in my right hand. And uh, that worked very well. But then we started getting different size sodas. All of a sudden, for no good reason, she started getting a small soda and I started getting a large soda. And I was stunned at how difficult it was for me to put her small soda in my right hand because my brain was saying the small soda is not as important as the big soda. <laughs> and my, But that was in conflict with this other presumption that my brain had that her soda was more important than my soda and should therefore go in my right hand. But it was clear that my intuition, my instinct was always to put the large soda in my right hand and the small soda in my left, which violated my rule. And, and it was amazing to me that, you know, I'm kind of a small guy. I certainly identify myself as small. And so to be thought to be, have this, conscious or unconscious thing in my head that I didn't ever know was there that big is better than small. And it's a strong belief that's in, you know, foundational in my, and I had no idea it was there. Hmm. And I think our brains are full of that kind of stuff. And some of it is racial. Some of it is sexist and we don't even know it's there And until we're ready to acknowledge that those things are there and begin wrestling with them, uh, we are perpetrators of the problem individually. And I think uh, it's true for you and me. I think it's true for police officers. I think it's true for elected officials. I think it's true for everyone, right? So I think implicit bias is a problem we all have to deal with, and that's part of the problem. Then there's this other thing called, you know, the institutional racism. And some of that we don't see, right? It's not like it's obvious because the very few laws are written in such a way that they call out their racist bias. But let me give you a really good example. So, uh, again, with an allegory, um, uh, the the story goes that a young woman was making a pot roast and uh, she... uh, you know, cut off the end of the pot roast and threw it in the pot with the, with the big piece of the pot roast. And her boyfriend said to her, why, why do you cut off the end? And she said, well, I don't know. My, my mom just taught me to do that. And so she called her mother and said, mom, why do we cut off the end of the pot roast to put it in the pot? She said, I don't know. Uh, my mom just taught me to do it that way. And so uh, she called her mother, who's now an old woman, and said, Mom, why do you cut off the end of the pot roast before you put it in the pot? And she said, well, because it doesn't fit if I don't, uh, right? So for generations, uh, women had been cutting off the end of the uh, pot roast because that's what was done, right? Without appreciating that the only reason was the constraint of a particular pot generations before. Mm-hmm. Now, we have the same thing with the electoral college, right? None of us ever give any thought to why it's there, but the reason it was there 
is because in uh, 1789, when we uh, created our Constitution, uh, blacks were not allowed to vote. Slaves were not allowed to vote. And so slave states uh, who had large slave populations but small white populations were grossly underrepresented on a simple popular basis. So the uh, Electoral College was an elaborate way to get around the fact that most of the people in the South couldn't vote. And so a popular election of white people in the United States at the time would have grossly underrepresented, they felt, the views of the white people in the South. And so the uh, Electoral College is fundamentally racist, and we continue to see that problem today. It's the populous states, by and large, where minorities live. Mm -hmm. And populous states are disadvantaged by the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. And less populated states, whether they're on the East Coast or the West, tend to be advantaged. So Vermont and New Hampshire and Utah and uh, Idaho and Montana and Wyoming, these lily white states where our votes count two or almost three times as much as a Californian or a New Yorker's vote. Uh, And so there is a hidden racist effect and a clear racist history and yet it still continues to exist in our law, even, and we think of it as a benign artifact of, of our constitution or, or a blessing of some sort. And in fact, it has these deep racist roots and a racial bias that still menaces our country today. And 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 I see that was one of those things that's that that hides behind a lie that's that has a deception to it. Um, you know, for years I, I I was always taught that it was because of that way just to be fair to states that had lower populations. I didn't understand the racist thing. You know, same thing with the uh, Confederate statues. Like I just figured some idiot had put them up after the Civil War in the South. Mm-hmm. They're really proud of that stuff. Okay, yeah, whatever. Come to find out, you learn about Jim Crow. You learn about the sons of, I believe it's called the Daughters of the Confederacy that put a lot of these things up, that lobbied to have the push, you know, and this was a back push from them against civil rights being given to more African-Americans um, and everything else. And you, you start learning about these these tinges, these true truths behind, you know, these, these false narratives that we have or false belief systems. Um, you know, one of the things that this helped me study on this journey is, manifest destiny and and some of the other belief systems that we have jim spalwin talks about a lot of this stuff um where we have these belief systems eddie god jr talks about it in his book a lot he calling it the lie off of what jim's jim james Baldwin spoke about um and and as a nation we have these we have these uh, crazy beliefs about our nation uh all these what you what you mentioned implicit biases and stuff um and a lot of times we don't know the truth. And what's great is we're learning that, you know, I learned about the daughters of the Confederacy back when we first had that first discussion back when uh, I think Charlottesville, when they were trying to tear down the the things and, and tearing down these monuments is important because uh, there are people in our communities that have seen these as the repressive, repressive tools that they were designed for the redlining of naming certain streets uh, after these uh, Confederate generals were designed to keep, uh, certain people from moving into those neighborhoods. You know, uh, there was an African-American gentleman I, I saw, um, I think it was on TV or something. He mentioned that his father would never drive down, you know, Robert E. Lee Lane. He made it a point that he would never drive down that street because it was named after Confederate general. And so black people were, were oppressed in this manner and also kept from buying homes in that area. And that was the, that was the conceived of intent of that thing. And I, hopefully we'll, we'll keep this push of protest going with black lives matter to where we can really understand the history of racism. The one thing I love about what James Baldwin talks about is, is as white people, we can't come to, we can't get away from the line. We can't, we can't come to, um, we, we, we've got to cleanse ourselves of, of why we do this, why we have these biases, why we have racism, what have we done to contribute to it? Um, you know, the, the recent thing with the kneeling on the neck of George Floyd, 
which uh, one of my guests earlier brought it up. It was a modern day lynching that we all had to watch. And that was the real horror of it and why it moved so many people, sadly, uh, that we had to go that far. Um, but what it did was it showed us how out of control and, of course, the brutality of police and the, and the institutional racism like you talk about, we got to see that happening. Um, you know, I was just watching a Van Jones show uh, where he's in and it was talking about how we have one fifth of the uh, we have one third of the or we have we have a very small amount of the population of the world. About four percent. Uh, we have a fifth fifth percent of the population of the world, but twenty five percent of 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 uh, uh, of of people incarcerated in the world. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. represents five percent of the world's population, but our prison population represents 25% of, uh, of people in the world that are in prison. So we're just like, we're just like a giant prison complex, basically America. And now you can kind of see how the cops at the, at the racial prejudice level, uh, they help feed the courts, which help, you know, the courts do their thing. And then people put in prison and most of the people in prison are blacks are Hispanics. And and you see what's you see you can see the whole flow of what's making the prison industrial complex what it is today, and the racial institutionalism of that. Yeah, and you know the arguments for police reform are so clear, right? Mm-hmm. We just have to watch uh, what happened to uh, George Floyd, uh, and it's agonizingly painful to watch. As you say, it is uh, a, a lynching, right? But um, once you see that, you recognize there is a need for reform. Uh, and it's not because all cops are bad. Uh, in fact, uh, I think there are very few bad cops. And I think uh, the duty of our police officers is a sacred duty, and I'm so glad they're there. I mean, if we're being honest, none of us want to live in a world where we can't call 911 if there is a real problem, right? Mm-hmm. If, if there is someone breaking into my house, I want the cops there really, really fast. And, and uh, I respect and honor police officers, and I'm grateful for their service. But that doesn't mean we can't and shouldn't reform some of what happens. And, and I think training and, uh, and holding people accountable for misbehavior uh, as in the George Floyd case. I think those are important first steps. But I think there's an opportunity for us to look beyond that and say, are we putting cops too often in situations where cops are not required? Is there someone else, someone who's not armed specifically, that could be sent into a situation uh, to defuse it? And let me give you a personal example of what I'm talking about. I was uh, visiting a national park uh, last weekend. And I was approached by an officer, uh, a ranger, but who was wearing a gun. And he said, uh, what are you doing here today? I'm like, what do you mean, what am I doing here today? I'm looking at the natural beauty of the planet, and I'm wandering around. You look subversive, and, though. I got to tell yeah, you. Yeah, I look really subversive. And... um and it made me nervous because he had a gun. And so I was thinking that his question was, are you up to no good? Mm-hmm. Right. I, I thought that was the intent of his question. As I interacted with him more and watched him interact with other people, it became clear that it, I thought he handled it a little bit clumsily and having a gun on his hip made me nervous and others I think as well. But what he was asking is, are you going to go for a long walk today? And if so, I really need to insist that you carry enough water because there aren't enough of us to go rescue all the morons who wander off into the desert without enough water. And it happens every day, right? And so (laughs) he was there to be very helpful. Yeah. It would have been so much better if the guy who was trying to be helpful didn't have a gun strapped to his hip. Yeah. The conversation would have been completely different for me. And and I just thought to myself, what if I had been a Native American from nearby mm-hmm. and felt threatened by this white officer carrying a gun? What yeah. if I were a black 
fellow in from uh, Detroit visiting Utah and watching, you know, marching through this national park. And this guy with a gun comes up to me and starts asking me what I'm doing here. Yeah. I mean, what could go wrong with that? I mean, yeah. I, I, and it, it just strikes me that there are plenty of opportunities for us to change that dynamic by pe- putting um, people without guns into many of the situations we now send police officers when people are having a mental health crisis, uh, perhaps even into some uh, uh, domestic violence situations because uh, guns come out uh, because guns show up. And uh, if we can throttle that back, I think that that will be uh, better. Uh, anyways, we need to investigate and explore all of those options for yeah. reducing the number of situations we send guns into. And I think we need to look at implicit bias. I mean, where these cops, once they find out they're, they are racially uh, tinged, where they have racism and, you know, they yeah. kind of out. Uh, and we all do. And break a nut. But, I mean, I've. I've had some cop friends that uh, I've heard them talk. They weren't like friends, friends. They're people that knew me from the clubs. And I, I've heard them talk about what they like to do on the job. And it's not pretty. And it is targeting. And they go looking every day for, for trouble um, or to screw up someone's life. Um, but we need to we need to break down and look at all these different forms and factors as, as to how racism is in our institutions, uh, starting from the cops, uh, I read a great report uh, that Reuters did on the problems we have with judges. Turns out there's a lot of judges that pull out of crap, do a lot of stuff that probably would land any other person in jail, and they get away with it. And uh, some of the racial targeting of people um, of, of race that uh, that they give them, you know, extra sentences or extra punishment beyond what they would normally give to other people. We've seen some. Uh, outrageous examples of that, like the the young white kid who raped the uh, girl and uh, got like what was it three days in jail or three weeks or some three months, and uh, then got out. and And then you know you look at the rest of the record and you're like, hey, what's going on? But we look at how what the costs are to society, and I can't remember who I've been listening to recently talked about this. But what we look at the the cost to our society of these damaged families. Um, who was the gentleman at the Wendy's who they killed through the drunk driver thing? I'm just Arbery. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just so many names now. I'm running. Yeah, I, I can't remember them all. But the, the gentleman who uh, was killed for drunk driving, you know, I watched the video of him talking about what it was like to be incarcerated, what it was like to be away from. I think he had three young daughters, um, and he couldn't be with them growing up. And and the reason he ran and put up a fight, and I'm sure he was uh, a little drunk, so he wasn't probably in a straight mind. I've been there, uh, is because he didn't want to go back. He knew that that violation would bang him back on parole, right back into jail, and uh, and he panicked and 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 lost his mind. But that's not a reason for killing somebody. Um, yeah. And and so when we we look at at what that causes with our mass incarceration rates. And you're right. I've watched cops a million times. I used to watch cops when I get depressed because I'd watch like two hours of that thing. And I'd be like, well, I'm not that white guy in the trailer with the wife beater shirt off uh, who you always know is going to jail. Whoever has their shirt off in cops when they show up at the trailer home, that guy's going to jail. Um, and, <laughs> and so, and so there are situations, and I, I don't know what the statistic is, so I'm just going to guess, and someone can call me wrong if they want. But the, the cops being called out, to like, say, for example, domestic violence situations, I, th- I would guess that nine times out of ten, it's just a disagreement that's gone too far um, and everything else. I've actually had the cops call me twice for disagreements that I had at my house, Um and and it was a gal that I was trying to get removed. She had an alcoholism problem, alcoholism problem, and I had found her uh, the first time. I was you know telling her and she needed to move out of my house uh, because she was drinking hundred dollar bottles of Cabernet Sauvignon because uh, she didn't get a five dollar bottle of vodka. You know I I was finding out what alcoholism was. It wasn't fun, um, and uh, and so she was trying to get me kicked out of my house. So when I asked her to leave, you know, she went to the neighbor and said, Oh, Chris is, you know, talking abusive and then whatever they called the cops. Um, when they, when they come out, you know, a lot of times the cops are just like, Hey, you know, can you work out or can we go to another place? Clearly when the cops showed up at my house, they could see, you know, she was like going like this from the, the booth and they're like, well, this guy is clearly sober and she's clearly out of her mind. Um, uh, it's kind of sad. She died of alcoholism years later. 
Um, but uh, I would say nine times out of 10, when the cops come out there, that really it could be a social worker. Unless it's like a violent situation where someone's actually getting hit, it should be a social worker. And a social worker could easily sit down. And instead of just saying, hey, man, um, one of you go to jail and one of you don't, or, you know, one of you go to another place, a social worker could sit down with them and go, okay, here's what we're going to do since I came out. We're going to put you in a family counseling program and I'm going to sit down and we're going to have some psychology sessions and we're going to work out what your thing is. And we're trying to make a roadmap to maybe have a safer, better marriage. Yeah. And that would be better because like what you mentioned, I've seen the same thing on cops. As soon as they show up with guns, you know, the emotions get amped up even far, which are already too far above. Uh, same thing with homeless people. I've seen a few homeless people killed because eight cops showed up and somehow escalated a situation with some guy who's, uh, you know, just uh, a homeless person. They turned that into a murder uh, just, just because they amped it up. And seriously, yeah. some, someone should just show up and help that person. Um, but, but yeah, I, there's so much in, in what I've been looking and learning at with the Black Lives Matter movement and, uh, and, uh, changing what's going on in our society. There's so much we have to deal with. Um, some of it's the shame of it all. Uh, some of it's the acknowledgement that, that some of the things we believe and what we do are wrong. Um, and it's quite the journey and it's, it's an interesting journey that a lot of us have to go on. I mean, since 2015 and starting to hear in 2016, you know, realizing reading what Breitbart was and the white nationalist movement, I had no idea what white national was before Trump, um, uh, you know, learning about their context, learning about their keywords like culture. This is our culture. And you see Trump saying that all the time. And that's why I had to learn from Trump. I'm like, what is he? Why is he always saying that culture word? What the fuck is that about? You know, I never put anything into mm-hmm. it. But then I find out, oh, shit, these are like, these are like the code words for the white nationalist KKK dudes. And then I got to go, oh, crap, man. Am I using those things? Am I using those yeah. words? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, culture has got to go out of my uh, vocabulary and man i don't want you know all the things that they talk about their code words and stuff i mean i just learned the other day that you know i knew about the okay symbol recently uh and kind of what mm-hmm. you know that was white nationalist i'm okay that was white nationalist and i learned the other day till mary hart did on the show and someone showed that what this double eight means that they do with yeah. the okay symbol is stands for eight eight and eight, i didn't even know that until yeah. like just the other day when in the South Dakota thing. And so learning about it, it's like, you know, I'm not even going to make that the okay symbol for the rest of my life. Like that's never just going to happen. Um, and, uh, uh, but, but learning all about this stuff, I mean, this is the journey we've been on and I've been on this journey now since 2015 where I'm like, okay, do I have implicit bias? Where do I have implicit bias with? Um, one of the activities I did a, f- a few years into Donald Trump was I started walking around and looking at faces when I go to the store of everyone and I would, and I would have this conscious thing and I'd be like, okay, so what did you just think? What did you feel? What were your belief systems about that person? Cause you looked at their face. What is your, what, what is your thing? Which is hard for me because I'm a comedian. So when I look at people's faces or when I look at people, sometimes I, you know, the comedic brain kicks in. I mm-hmm. want to do jokes mm-hmm. and it's not mean. It's not racial. I'm just, you know, I mean, look at me. I mean, look at me. I look like a Trump voter. Look like a fat white trash uh, dude. <laughs> if you put shades on me, I look like a fucking cop in a car. I mean, <laughs> come on, man. I know, I know my place in the food chain, but, but seriously though, I, I looked, I looked at people that gave me fear. And when I looked at them or looked at their face, I went, I'm kind of scared of that person. And then I would go, okay, so why do we have that? Why, why do you feel scared about that person? Well, I don't know, they kind of look kind of subversive. <laughs> well, who looks subversive? You know, you're at this store. Um, and unfortunately, one of the things that I, I realized is that, and, and there's, pro- there's some science behind this, that we look at faces as a way of determining stuff. This is very tribal. This goes back to our beginning of, of, um, of time. We do it for breeding where we determine uh, our faces and people that we feel that might be in the good people in the breeding pool. In fact, women, when they go through their menstrual cycle, um, there's different times of the month where they'll be attracted to a guy with a very cut jaw and then other times of the month where they won't. Um, 
you know, we, we read a lot of stuff about how we, okay, can I trust this person? Is this person going to kill me? You know, I'm going back to caveman days. Um, you know, a lot of that in reading, you know, how people are coming at you and whether or not uh, they're on the good, the, you know, are, are you the tribe that's going to kill me or the other tribe, you know, the whole caveman thing. Um, and so we look at faces. I mean, we study faces when we look at news, uh, TV, all those sort of things. We look at faces and we, and we like faces that reassure us and stuff as opposed to maybe faces that don't like, you know, um, there's certainly, I mean, if you look at Marilyn Manson and you look at your mom, probably gonna have a totally different reaction as to, you know, what your perception of that is. And so I, I started looking and walking around at what my racial implicit bias was, where I would look at people and be mm-hmm. like, oh, that person must be you, whatever. Um, and uh, started thinking more about what that meant and how it was impacting me or uh, driving uh, either potential racism or just, just, just stupid shit that I thought, you know, that I'm just mm-hmm. like, why do you think that way? That's dumb. That person is just probably a normal person, you know, whatever. So we all have to come to grips with this. Yeah, we do. It, it, and so part of the solution is for us to all own our role in it, right? Uh, that's, that's part of it. So, yeah, there's a lot to be done. And that's the good news, right, in this situation is uh, this discussion, uh, as I think about Black Lives Matter, is now five or six years old. And uh, it's aging well, right, because uh, we have gone from uh, a principle uh, to remind us all that black lives, in fact, do matter. Uh, and that there is a problem with that, uh, that some people seem to behave in ways that suggest they don't. Uh, We've come from that key principle, that new understanding, and we're moving really progressively, I think, toward more actionable, implementable solutions that can help us actually address the problem. I'm excited about that. And there are a lot of things that uh, we can do in a and it, a lot of it's community based and it's different. Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement in Moab has uh, a, you know a twelve point uh, objective list that they want to accomplish, and a lot of it in Moab is centered around not the African American community but the Native American community mm-hmm. that is marginalized in that community, and it's exciting to see. Uh, the that maturity and and the the specific actions that people are now talking about that can be taken in the community to elevate uh, marginalized people and create a more inclusive uh, egalitarian community and it's exciting. That's beautifully said. I, that's what I want. I want to see this thing continue. Of course, we need to remove Trump from office for this to continue. I really feel, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, pull this from a number of future guests, but I really feel like his intention was was to turn us more racist and go back to like a 1950s sort of racism. You know, even Bannon talked that they were fine with creating a race war um, and baiting it. And I really feel like Donald Trump at his core is a KKK deep seated racist. Um, and I, I think you can see lots of evidence, even going back to 1970s uh, and his father and uh, when they got sued by the justice department for um, over fair housing and, and uh, black uh, people discrimination. But I really feel he's tried to taint our pool to pull out all the closet racists, which he has done a lot of that. Um, these people feel free to run around and scream whatever they want. We're seeing the Karens, of course, now that are almost daily on Twitter. It's just every time I see a new one, I'm like, I just want to go punch a white person in the face. Um, and uh, these white people in the face, I should say. Um, but he, I think he's really tried to drag us back. And I think a lot of his voters have tried to do the same thing. I think he's trying to make us a more racist nation to go back to an era that he's more comfortable with. Um, and I think that's failing and I hope it's failing and I yeah. want it to fail. And I'm really concerned that if he was to gain election for another four years and we weren't going to take the Senate, I'm hoping that the back, the backup on this, even if he wins election by some God knows what, yeah. 
but we would at least get the house and the Senate so we can just impeach him out. Um, but, uh, my, my hope is, is that we get rid of him. But, uh, so, so number one, my belief is that, is that, is that we, we, um, that he was trying to do this and he was hoping that we would rise to the case. And that's why he's going deep right now with the racism. He's trying to pull out as much as he can of the racist people that show up and he's trying to turn us as far to racism as he possibly can to, to get us flipped to his switch and we're not doing it and we're fighting back and we're standing up for people that uh, are minority in our country and we're going, you know what, we're, we're with them and you're not going to get to bully these people anymore. Um, the other thing that the next step of that is, 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 uh, nah, I've forgotten my point, but the first step is he wanted us to take us down that road and make us, more yeah. racial and, and a more racial country. I mean, he would, he'd probably be just happy as shit if we had colored fountains and bathrooms again. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, but I, I do know this in Utah. Uh, I, I'm seeing a real passion around the concept of black lives matter. And the, the vast majority of Utahns accept that principle that they, they share that, that hashtag, they believe it. Uh, and they don't want uh, to live in a racist community. They don't want to be racist. They want to reject racism. Uh, and I think that's important uh, that, that, in fact, that is becoming a shared objective. Um, mm-hmm. We've moved a little bit past, collectively past this argument that there is no racism. There is no structural racism. There is no real problem. Utah is moving past that. Uh, and, and that is the first and huge step toward solving it, right? Is acknowledging that there's a problem and work and beginning to take, play a role in the solution. And I think the majority of Utahns are squarely in that camp. It's exciting for me to see it. And, and I'm excited about the implications of that because it is, I really truly believe it's people like me, it's Democrats, it's Joe Biden, it's Chris Peterson, it's Greg uh, scored us. It's people like that that are going to be fighting for implementing the real kinds of changes that most Utahns want to create a society without systemic racism. As we wrap up, I'll throw you what my second part was. I finally remember what that was. Did we have to go through Donald Trump to come to grips with our racism? Boy, I don't know. That's a, a a profound question. I hope the answer is no, but the because fact certainly is we, we can't be... change whether or not we have to go through them. We can only change whether or not we have to go through them for the next four years too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I don't want to be glib, uh, uh, but I think uh, Americans are fired up like they haven't been in a generation or more, and uh, he will not be our president in January. Because I remember going through Obama, and I was like, okay, well, we've got a black president. I voted for him, not because he's black, because he reported change and all the stuff he's going to do. And I'm like, you know what? This guy's going to go in there and, uh, you know, new government. All right, sure. Yeah, I love his ideas. Um, you know, the fact he was black was cool, but, you know, he, he was cool. He was awesome. He was brilliant, intellectual, great speaker, great motivator. Um, I really bought the change, man. I bought the change. And... Uh, and so a lot of people kind of fell back and went, okay, well, you know, this is good. We've, this helps racism and beats it back and we're on our way. You know, I didn't think racism was beaten, but, uh, the question I had is, is that we had to see the world go so dark. Uh, in 1965, when James Baldwin was around, we had to see, uh, you know, the people beaten, uh, in, in, uh, in, in, on the, on the Birmingham bridge and, and, uh, and uh, we had to, you know, see dogs be put upon black people. And once that made the TV sets, the whole world went, holy crap, what's going on in the South, right? But we had to see that ugliness. We had to see the ugliness of uh, a man dying before us, George Floyd, in a, in a choke-out position where it just came out that he was saying, I can't breathe. I'm losing oxygen. And the, the cop says something to him like, well, you know, you're wasting your breath talking because uh, you should probably reserve your oxygen because I'm going to kill you. Basically, yeah. his intent. So it, it saddens me that we had to go to a dark place, a very dark place. We had to stand at the precipice of becoming 
God, some sort of KKK, you know, 1950s sort of uh, society um, to beat back racism to say, holy crap, this is really something we have to deal with. And I'm hoping that 55 years from now, we won't be going through this again to learn this lesson that we seem to just never learn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am optimistic that we are learning it and mm-hmm. we are going to implement uh, great changes. And, uh, you know, chief among those is we're going to vote in a new president in November. And I will take your optimism, sew it on a pillow, and I'm going to cuddle it at night and uh, and hope for the best. There you go. Because <laughs> I need all the optimism I can get at this point. Uh, good, good. Uh, so, Devin, thanks for being on the on the uh, show and uh, having a great conversation with us for social good. Keep up what you're doing. Give us some plugs again for your books and your website. So uh, the website is uh, devinthorpe.com, D-E-V-I-N-T-H-O-R-P-E.com. And, uh, yeah, I wrote uh, Your Mark on the World, 925 Ideas to Help You Save, your, save Money, Get Out of Debt, and re- uh, Retire a Millionaire, so you can leave your mark on the world, uh, adding profit by adding purpose and crowdfunding for social good. There you go. Uh, check him out, guys. He's been on the show twice now, so he's, he's in the running for the uh, Chris Voss Show uh, SNL robe. You get, I think, <laughs> after five appearances or something. Yeah. Um, Isn't there a jacket? <laughs> jacket, robe, I don't know. It could be something. <laughs> okay. It's probably going to be an ugly ass green jacket, like they give the masters dudes. Yeah. Like I never no, figured yeah. out what that's about. Like, like that's an award. Like you give yeah. me this. maybe a Chris Voss hat is all I need. Maybe a Chris Voss hat. We'll have to make some Chris Voss hats and give those out or something. That's probably better than a robe, but uh, I don't know. Neither one will get you laid. <laughs> anyway, guys, uh, certainly appreciate you guys for being on the show. Uh, be sure to watch for our future guests. We've got a lot of great book authors uh, coming up on the show. Jeez, I just look at the schedule; it's just amazing. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the show at dcvpn.com and chrisfosspodcastnetwork.com. Look forward to seeing you in the future. Stay safe, wear a mask, and we'll see you next time.